Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there really might be a thousand good truths about God in this one chapter. And, and we got started into some last week. I'm hoping we continue into more next week. But I, do, I just want to say that I know that this right here, even as he... Let me get my red back up. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That thought, and then the word that's used for it, he predestined us. Like I know that for a lot, and maybe not for all, but for a lot of us, there's a barrier there. There's a hurdle there that's really hard to get over. And, it, and we get stuck behind the barrier and we can't really see the beauty of the rest of the passage sometimes. Or we trip over the hurdle and don't get to the rest of it. And I don't want us to miss all the great stuff about God in here because of this. That's why we're going to wrestle with it today. Can we look at it in such a way that helps us see the beauty of this whole passage? Can we look at it in such a way that, that emphasizes the grace and goodness of God? Um, so that's what we're shooting for. Now, there's two big dangers in us spending the majority of this morning talking about what people would call the doctrine of predestination, or sometimes when you use the word chose, I call it the doctrine of election. The first danger is that we will miss the point of this passage. And here's what I mean. You get it in verse 4, he chose. You get it in verse 5, predestined. And then if you skip down to verse 11, we get it one more time, predestined. How many verses are in Ephesians chapter 1? Somebody just scroll down. 23? 23 verses. How many times is this doctrine mentioned in those 23 verses? 
I just circled them. <laughs> Three. Is the majority of this passage about predestination or not? No. <laughs> 20 verses don't mention it. Three verses mention it. Do you see already that if we spend all our time talking about this, we've probably skewed something that's not the major main point into being the major main point? So there's a danger. Like just already, I want to tell you up front, there's a danger that we'll get so focused on this one thing that we'll miss the main things. And I just hope by saying that out loud, maybe it helps us not do that today. What's the main thing in this passage? Look up here with me. Where Paul starts, you know, the introduction of verses 1 and 2. Then look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 3, Paul starts with praise and worship to God because he has given us every spiritual blessing in Jesus. This idea of God choosing us because he set his love on us before time began is one of those spiritual blessings. But there's a whole list of them in the rest of these verses, like this introduction section down through verse 14, that are part of the main idea just as much as that one. And what I would say, the first thing I would say is, if this first one, you know, chronologically the things that happened in eternity past in the mind of God, which is what predestination is, that comes first chronologically, and so Paul starts there. But if you're having trouble with that one, and I know I don't tell you to do this very often, just skip that for right now and look at everything else he says in the rest of these verses. And I, want us to, I don't want us to miss the rest of them because of this one. So look at all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that God has given us in Jesus. He chose us in the foundation of the world. He predestined us. Now here's, pick up right here, adoption. And so let's just come over here and start new notes today. God has adopted us in Jesus. He's called you his children. Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That God looked at you and you were, you were a spiritual orphan. And the God of the universe said, I'll be your father and you'll be my child. I want you to be in my family. And he sent his one true son that by faith you could be so united to Jesus, the son of God, that you become a son or a daughter of God in Jesus, that he is your older brother and you share with him his relationship with God and God looks at you now and he sees his child. So there's one blessing. In him, this is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption, you know, God redeems us in Jesus. The word redemption means to buy back or to pay. Like when you're in slavery and someone buys you, like pays for you and sets you free, that's redemption. And through the blood of Jesus, God has paid the price that you owe for your sin. God has paid the debt that your sin created. And you were a slave to sin. You were, you were lost in sin and a slave to death and headed for hell. And God paid for you and bought you out in Jesus. The price you could never pay, the debt that you owed, that you would never ever have enough to cover it. God covered it all by the blood of Jesus and he's redeemed you. And he's taken you out of slavery and turned you into his child. The forgiveness of our trespasses. God forgives our sins. I do not know why that keeps doing that. It's two weeks in a row, isn't it? Sorry about that. Our sins in Jesus. According to the riches of his grace, I just I feel like that's such a great phrase and then which he lavished upon us. I want to just make another one. God lavishes the riches of his grace on us. This isn't the idea of if you come and you beg enough 
and you make your case good enough and you just you annoy him and you wear him down and you prove, hey, I'm trying really hard and I've done the best I can and, and here's the promises of what I'll do next. Like If you'll just give me, just get out your little medicine dropper and drop just a little bit of grace on I me. Mean, God, if you'll just give that to me, it'll be worth your time. I'll make it worth your time. Please, please, please. Like You don't have to harass him to get grace. Like He's lavishing it on you. He is flooding out of him, pouring out of him. He's got this wealth of treasures of grace. And, and out of all the riches and bounty and abundance of grace, he's pouring it all over. You don't beg for it. He's ready to give it to you before you even know you need it. Like he's coming to soak you with his grace. That, that's the picture. This is his heart towards you, no matter what your heart is toward him. Like he's not pouring grace out on you because you've begged enough and you, you, you were able to just, like, just squeeze a little bit out of him somehow. <laughs> it's flooding out of him because this is who he is and this is his heart towards you. That it's him. That he wants to lavish you with, with massive, limitless, boundless riches of grace in Jesus. In all wisdom and insight that God's work in Jesus is, because of the word all here, I'm going to say, infinitely wise. Making known to us the mystery of his will that God is revealing his mysterious will to us in Jesus. To unite all things in him. God is uniting all things. In Jesus. In him we've obtained an inheritance. We are heirs of God. The God who has made everything and owns everything, we inherit from him. We are heirs of God in Jesus. We're sharing in Jesus' inheritance. Did it again. If anybody knows what's happening because you're smarter at iPads than I am, tell me. According to the purpose of him, he walks all things to cancel his will. And then down here in verse 13, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. You believed him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God has given us his Spirit, and then continuing into verse 14, a guarantee of our inheritance. God guarantees our inheritance. This is a promise from Him that He will fulfill. It is happening, and the Spirit is the one who seals us and proves that God's really going to do it. Like he's made us His own. He came to live in us. That's how much He accepts you. That, that's... That's how much you're united to him now. He lives in you by his spirit. And, so, and the reason I'm doing this, look, and I know I blew through that, and it wasn't like we did some kind of sermon here. I just, and some of you are like, slow down. I've got to get every word and every note, and it's driving me nuts. I can't write it all down. A major type A. You can go back later and scroll and get those. Like, the point right now is this. All that is in these first 13, 14 verses, and a lot of times we don't see any of that because of like, predestination. What in the world? Why would somebody talk about that? that I, I reject that. <laughs> first thing I would say is like, if that's the first link in the chain and this is the rest of the chain, you may want that chain. <laughs> right? It may be a bad decision to reject these verses. There's a lot of good stuff in there for you. And now here's, here's what I think it's like. And this just, by the way, just probably the most influential Christian thinker for me on this is a guy named C.S. Lewis. He's been dead for 60 years. Um, and if some of you are like in these circles of, of labels of this type of theological system, this type of theological system, I'm not really interested in jumping into all that. I'd rather just say, here's what the Bible says or doesn't say, and we wrestle with it. But just if you are in those labels, C.S. Lewis would have like personally said, I am not reformed. Like if you're worried about that word, he would, he would have been like, I know I'm not that. But the most helpful reading I've ever read about this comes from C.S. Lewis. There's a chapter in Mere Christianity called Time and Beyond Time. And if you want to go read that one chapter, like it is incredibly helpful for wrestling with this. He's also got a book on prayer called Letters to Malcolm. 
and I don't, you wouldn't figure this out from the title, but he had a friend named Malcolm, and he wrote letters to him. And the rest of the chapter is chiefly about prayer. All the letters in the book are about prayer. <laughs> but as he wrestles with prayer, he wrestles a lot with this idea of a timeless, eternal God hearing our prayers and taking them into account. It's really good, too. And there's a lot of other stuff. His, you, so you got Lewis. And then Tim Keller is more modern-day. Um, he would call himself Reformed. So Lewis would not. Tim Keller would. He quotes Lewis all the time. But his sermons have been really helpful to me. I listened to one yesterday on predestination just to think, like, can he say this more clearly than I can? Because he's a much clearer communicator than I am. And so I just want to say that anything I say, like it may be a hodgepodge of stuff you could find in Lewis. You might hear from Keller. If it makes sense, it's probably because they gave it to me. And if it doesn't, it's because I muddled it and messed it up. All right? But... With all that said, this first illustration that came to mind for me, it's like Paul starts here and he's like, look at the gifts that God's given you in Jesus. Blessed be God. Thanks to God. Praise to God for all these gifts. And imagine yourself opening up this box and there's all these beautiful gifts in this box, right? You, I mean, it's like there's diamonds and rubies and sapphires and, and whatever, amethyst, whatever pretty jewels you can think of. And there's these pieces of, like these ornate pieces of gold and silver and platinum. And you take it out and you start, put, and you realize all these pieces fit together and they build like this beautiful statue of some sort. Like the, the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen in your life. But also in the box, there's just this hard wooden piece of bland junk. And you're like, this doesn't fit with that. I don't, I, this, is, this is beautiful. I don't want that, though, so you toss it to the side. And you get done with your beautiful, bejeweled, golden, sparkly, gleaming statue, and you set it up on your table, and it all falls over. And you're like, well, and you put it back together again. You're like, I love, look how pretty all this is. And you set it, and, it, and then it dawns on you. And you're like, that, that bland piece of wood that I tossed aside... That's the base for this whole thing. That's the foundation for the whole thing. And this other stuff's really pretty, but it stands on that base. And so you take that piece of wood that you thought was useless, that you thought didn't fit in, and you set it, and you build this thing back up on top of it, and now it can hold its own weight. My first suggestion to you is that that's what the doctrine of predestination is. Like, it looks hard on the outside, and I'll tell you, like, two decades of wrestling with it, at least. The first time somebody brought it up to me, I was in college. It looks hard on the outside. It, look, it doesn't look as pretty as the others. But when you get to the point of seeing the way that, that Paul teaches it, the way that the Bible teaches it, what God determined in his heart before time began is the foundation for everything else that flows out of the gospel. And you can go for a long time with, in your life just, and look at the other pretty stuff and say, it's so pretty. The forgiveness that God gives me in Jesus is so, and it is, it's beautiful. And you don't have to see that base to know that the forgiveness is beautiful. And you can look at, at, at the jewels and diamonds of redemption, of God purchasing you with the blood of his own self, God looking at you and saying, you're worthless but you're so valuable to me that I will pay the unfathomable cost of my son's own life to buy you back for myself. And you can say, redemption's beautiful. And you can look at every one of those pieces and you can see their beauty. And so I'm not saying that you've got to wrap your mind around verses 4, 5, and 6 in order to see the beauty of the rest of the passage. But I am telling you that over time, as you build it into this comprehensive view of who God is and that God is the cent at the center of all the work that he's done and God's grace flows out of himself towards you, it's not something that anything in you prompts in him. Otherwise, it wouldn't really be grace. As you see that more and more and more, you realize this whole beautiful thing, it can't stand up without these first few verses. And that thing that you discarded several years ago because it was hard and it didn't look pretty and you didn't like it, it was like, I don't want that messing up my statue. It's like we're embarrassed of that one. Like, I want everybody else to see the gold and the platinum and the silver and the diamonds and the rubies. This is beautiful. Hey, come look at this. And I'm like, I don't, don't show them that. And, and I want to confess to you that there's part of me sometimes that's embarrassed. Just say, this is what the Bible says. And I don't like that about myself. I don't want to run into anything that the Bible says and be embarrassed to say, okay, what's that teach us? Instead, it's like when, when this is in place, the whole thing stands for itself. So that's the first illustration that came to mind. And if you want to kind of wrestle with it 
in those terms, I think it would be helpful for you to see the flow from verse 3, verse 4, all the way down through verse 14 there, that all this is connected in the mind of God. But then beyond that, here's where we go, just full illustrations for a little while. I'm going like where no man has gone before. Like I know what I'm getting ready to do, okay, is like they would tell you in preaching class, this is the worst thing you could ever do to an audience. Your illustrations have to connect with them. If they don't connect, they're going to check out. So how many of you like math? Okay, we've got a few. Like I, thank you. How many of you hate math? Thank you for your honesty. Okay, I'm sorry, but if you will stick with me, like all we're going to do is count, okay? But this is a math illustration. And like it really is good, if you'll stick with me. So imagine just counting, like just the numbers we count with. One, two, three, four, you know, on up. If I say that that list has no end, are you comfortable with that? That as long as we're counting, we could always add another number. You get to a million, you can do a million and one. You get to a billion, you can do a billion and one. You, know, you get to a trillion, you can do a trillion and one, trillion two. Like it, it, it's infinite. Like the, just the simple concept of what infinite is. Are we good with that? Okay. Now, I'm going to do a second list where we just use the even numbers. Like skip all the odds. So two, four, six, eight. Do you agree with me that that also goes off to infinity? You know, like we could keep going forever. There's always another even. You get to a, a billion, you go to a billion and two. Trillion, you go to a trillion and two. Do you also agree with me that this second list has half the numbers that the first list has in it? Right? The first list has every counting number. The second list only has the evens. So it has to have half of the first list. It's missing all the odds. Right? So list number one is infinite. List number two is also infinite. But list number two is half of list number one. Do we have a problem yet? Like, anybody sniffing out a contradiction here? Now, let me show you one more really fun thing. You think that list number two is half of list number one. But actually, for every number you give me in list number one, if I just double it, I've got a number in list number two that corresponds to it. Right? Like, if you say one, multiply it by two, I can say two. If you say two, multiply it by two, I can say four. If you say three, multiply it by two, I, and, and it doesn't matter. Pick a Google, and I'll say two Google. Right? I can always, so actually there's the exact same number in the second list as there is in the first list. But the second list has half of the first list, right? So which one, vote time. Is the second list half the size of the first list? How many of you think? few of you. Is the second list the same size as the first list? You are chickens not voting. <laughs> Look, I don't know the answer. I think it's both. Here's the point. When you go off to infinity, things happen that our finite minds can't grasp. Like, do you see that? Like, just something as simple as this. Like, I, I, and I want you to see, it looks like a contradiction. It looks like it's half, and it looks like it's the same. And you and I could talk about it for the next hundred years. Like, there's books written about this. We could talk about it for the next hundred years, and you will, like, every time you say it's half, I'd be like, no, it's the same. And every time you say it's the same, I'd be like, no, it's half. <laughs> and we could just do that forever. Now, just to make it a little more fun, we left the odds out a minute ago. If you're odd, I don't want you to feel left out. So let's go down here. We're going to do one more group. One, three, five, seven. Now, do you agree that the list of odds has the same amount as the list of evens in it. You know, for every odd, there's an even, back and forth forever. Do you also agree that we established that this list of evens has the same number in it as the list of everything? Right, because you give me a number in that list of everything. If I multiply it by two, I can give you an even. So this group up here is infinite, right? That's group one. Let's call that, let's, let's let I represent infinite, capital I. Like, we're getting into algebra now. I know you are like, what is he doing? So group one up here is infinite. Now, but we've just agreed that group two is also infinite, right? And group three is also infinite. So if I take the infinites from group two and I add them to the infinites from group three, I should have two i, right? i plus i gives us two i. Except if I take group two and group three and add them together, all I've got is group one, which was all the numbers, and that's just infinite. So now... I 
plus i equals i. In other words, 1 plus 1 equals 1, not 2. Right? What is he doing today? Here's the point. We start dealing with infinite and eternal. Like our finite systems of thought, our finite minds, our finite ways of expressing that can't do it. And you may think, well, that's just a pointless math exercise. Just so you know, like everything in math in the whole world that affects airplanes and cars and computers and smartphones, all the technology you know is based on calculus, and calculus is based on this thought being done over and over and over and over an infinite number of times. Like, we assume that we can guess what's going to happen when we get to infinity. We project it out, we base a whole system of math on it, and then we all live like it's true. And none of us understand it. All right, I'm, I'm like dead serious right now. I know it seems silly. Here's the point. We're dealing with an infinite and eternal God. And then we want to be like, when we run off, into the eternal mind of God from, from all eternity past and try to grasp the infinite work that he's done, you better be able to say that in the next 45 minutes in a way that makes sense to me or I'm rejecting Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. You better not start your car today if you reject stuff you don't understand. <laughs> right? Like, of course we don't fully get this. You're talking about an unlimited endless, infinite God who has chosen to reveal to us the mysteries of his will contained within himself from all eternity past and how somehow that interacts with who we are as finite, limited beings confined to time here on earth in a moment and you're like, I better the, the, the whole of however that relates to me, I better be able to understand it. No, you better not. Like If you can understand it all, it's not the infinite, eternal mind of God because it wouldn't fit in your mind. Like If I could fully understand this, I'd be like, well, that's not the truth about God. <laughs> it's got to be bigger than that. So I just want you to see, when we start running off into eternity or infinity and trying to wrap our minds around what God's done there, it's bigger than us. That's, and it, I think it's really significant to say it looks like a contradiction. Right? It, there's no way this is half and the same. There's no way this is two and one. Well, no, not in the finite world. But something new happens out in infinity that I don't understand. And so I know, I know it looks like a contradiction that God is the, the sovereign God who's made choices in his heart before time began to love his people and set them apart as his own. And then also that you get down to verses 13 and 14, and he says, when you heard the gospel and believed, that you heard and you responded to the gospel, and that was necessary for your salvation, that you really have to make a choice. And you're really responsible for what you choose. And what you do in this life matters. And what you say and how you interact with other people, like all of that matters. And it feels like, well, there's a contradiction there. Sure, in our finite minds. But when we run off to infinity, there's all sorts of stuff that fits that just doesn't fit in our minds. And so I just want to start there and say, the Bible says both things. God's sovereign, and he's working out everything in accordance with his plan and his purpose. That his, his grace is such a sovereign grace that nothing in you or any of us prompted it. It was in him. It's something in him that prompted it. That's true. And also, you have to respond to him. You have to respond in faith. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes in Jesus will receive that grace. They're both true. And I'm not trying to fit them together. I, I'm telling you what the mystery is this morning. I'm not trying to solve the mystery for you. All right. Here's a thought that I do have for how these things fit together. Usually, I think this is kind of the view we have. of like Here's this big box that's all reality. And I think we kind of think that God is the biggest thing, the top thing in all reality. And then here, us, creation, everything underneath him is. But then up here outside the box is time. Like, I think usually that this is kind of what we smuggle, that, that our relationship to time is similar to God's. You know, time flows for us, and it flows. For, it's just he's got all of it. It flows forever for him that way. It flows forever for him this way. He's just got an infinite amount, and we've got a limited amount. I don't think this is the right view of God, because in this view, God is subject to time. God's not God over time. 
Right? Like, like time controls God or, or limits God or bounds God. Not to mention, like, basically we know now that time is part of this physical creation, you know, the space-time continuum. Um, I, I'm not jumping into all that. If you want a good lesson on it, go watch Back to the Future. All right? They cover it way better than I can. But really, like when God creates the physical universe, he also creates time, which means the moment before he creates the physical universe, time doesn't exist. And now we're at a place where I can't talk because that's not a moment and it's not before because those are time words, right? So it's more like this. Here's all of creation. Here's time as part of that creation. And then here's God outside of it. And if you're thinking, what in the world? So let's move to some illustrations now that I think are really helpful. Imagine an author writing a book. Um, so Shakespeare, I'm a, I'll pick something really old so I don't risk like spoiling an ending for you. If you haven't read Romeo and Juliet by now, you've had several hundred years time. So, so Shakespeare's writing Romeo and Juliet and he gets near the end. You know, like he's created this world, right? And these people exist in this world. And he gets near the end and he's got to figure out how am I wrapping this thing up? Like I need them both to die. I need it to be tragic. I need it to be in a way where they both die because the other one thinks the other one's dead and they can't live without them. But somebody's got to go first. How do I do this thing? Right? And so he steps back. You know, when, when the whole little poison dagger, all that stuff happens in just a few pages in that book. Let's say that scene takes 10 minutes in the book. He steps back and for two months, He's like, how am I going to do that? Like, like this is a, I, I've created something great here, and I need to end this perfectly. And he ponders the whole book, and he thinks about all the characters, and he thinks about what the plot's been and the themes that he's woven. And finally, after two months, he comes back, and he's ready to write that last scene. How much time had passed in the book? None. Because Shakespeare's not in the timeline of the book. He steps out of it into his own timeline. Right? And so we can already understand how the author can be outside the time of what he's created, and he has all this extra, like, and, and the time that he spends out here doesn't cost any time in there. And in the same way, he could be like, hey, we're going to fight, you know, I hate this thing in TV shows where a season ends and the next season starts and it's like three years later. I'm like, you are lazy. <laughs> like, what happened? Right? But, but in four seconds, they typed three years later, and even though it only took four seconds here, it's three years there. Like the disconnect. Same thing, I think, going on with God, except imagine being able to not step out of the time of the book into the time of your world, but imagine being able to step out of all time into a timeless moment where only you exist, where you're the creator, you're the only one who is I am who I am. You're the great I am. All things flow out of you, including all time and timelines and worlds and create, like everything flows out of you, but there's a place outside of it where you're the only one who exists. I think that's the right way to understand God. And then to see him as this author who is writing a story. But even imagine, like, let's just keep that illustration going for a minute. The greatest authors, like when they write a really good story, how many, like you start to feel like their characters are real, don't you? And you don't talk about, like you don't read Shakespeare and you're like, well, the reason Romeo did that is because Shakespeare wrote it that way. Nobody says that. Like Romeo's so alive and real that you feel like he's responsible for what he does. And Juliet's response, and it doesn't, Shakespeare's sovereign over it, right? <laughs> but we, we, we quickly tolerate the disconnect there. We're like, yes, if you ask me, is it because of Shakespeare? Yeah. Is it also because of what Romeo did? Yeah. And they're both true. And I don't have any problem with it. You know, or, or to go to like a more modern day one, if you're like, don't talk about like English lit stuff. So uh, Harry Potter, right? When, when you're like, why is Voldemort so evil? Well, because J.K. Rowling wrote him that way. Yeah. Yeah. True. But because that's who his character is, consistent with who he is. And when you read it, like, you just get to where you know what he's going to be like and what he's going to do when he shows up. And, and the same way for Dumbledore. Like, you know he's going to be gracious and he's going to be wise and he's going to be funny. Like, all these things, because she's created characters that are so rich and, and, and complex that you feel like they're real. Look, Shakespeare's a human and J.K. Rowling's a human and their books aren't real. God is an author who's... Like when he speaks, something happens. He says light, and there's really light. Not, not light in a book, really light. And he said, I'm going to create creatures in my image who are going to be real. And they're going to make real choices 
in my story. And they're really going to be responsible for those choices. And those choices are going to matter. And those choices are going to bring things about. And also, by the way, I'm still the author up here writing the whole story. And it's like, is it because of God? Yes. Is it because of you? Yes. On the same level? No. <laughs> right? He's more ultimate. He's, but, but it's so important to realize that reality exists on these two levels. A level where there's only God. Outside of everything. Above everything. Limited by nothing. That the only thing that dictates anything for God up there is who he is. And that's why it's so crucial that we would know who he is. Because if he's a cruel and vengeful and spiteful God, there's no hope for us. If he's just a rigidly just and unforgiving God, there's no hope for us. But if the God who can't be touched by anything outside of him, who exists in a place where nothing else can get to and nothing else can ever exist there, if that God just within himself, because this is who he is, is a relational God, a loving God, a God who has loved Father, Son, and Spirit within himself for all eternity. Like he's always existed in a place of love and a place of relationship. And love and relationship are at the core of who he is. And he's a God who, because of who he is, love flows out of his heart. And he longs for relationship with the ones that he's created. And he longs to pour out grace and mercy and compassion just because that's who he is. Do you know what good news it is for us? Don't reject that about God just because it doesn't depend on you. Like how, how foolish would we be to say, if you love because of you and not me, not because of me, I don't want you to love me. If you give me grace and it's prompted by something in you and not something in me, I don't want that kind of grace. It makes no sense. Listen, there is no other kind of love. If he loves you because of stuff in you, he's not loving you. <laughs> He likes what he can get from you. <laughs> and if, if you stop having the stuff he likes, he'll stop liking you. And I know that seems natural to us because that's the way we all work with one another. That's what human love looks like. Human love is I'm really attracted to these things in you, and I say that I love you, but really it's, it's much more transactional than what we want to admit. Like if you didn't have these things, maybe I wouldn't love you anymore. That's not love. Like it, it's a... a pale imitation of the real, where God says, I love you, period. I love you just because I love you. You never did anything to earn my love, which is why you have the assurance that you will never lose my love. It depends on me, and I don't change, and I love you. And do you see that that's a beautiful piece of the gospel? Not a piece to toss aside and hate and reject. Do you know why we hate it and reject it? Like we, we, I'm trying to deal on the illustrations with some of the intellectual stuff, but let's talk about the spiritual stuff for just a minute. Here's why we hate it and reject it. Because we do want to be the reason. The sin in my heart, the pride in me, the self-centeredness rares up, and we don't say it this way. Like We'll say, what about free will? You know why we love free will so much? It makes us feel like we're the master. I can do whatever I want, and I'm the final decider in everything. Another poll. How many of you are the center of the universe? <laughs> Nobody's raising their hand on this one. How many of us live like we're the center of the universe? No, really, like in all seriousness, you're not the center of the universe. I'm not the center of the universe. Why in the world would we come to a doctrine like this and say, hey, the final core, deepest reason for everything that happens to me has got to be me? You're not the center of the universe. You aren't the final core, deepest reason for anything. And neither am I. And that's okay. It doesn't mean you're not a reason. We talked last week about how you can have multiple reasons why something happens, and all of them be real reasons, real causes. Some are deeper than others. Some are more immediate. Than I was talking about my dog dying last week. And it was like, you know, the vet gave her a shot and she died, but the reason was because I asked him to do it. The reason was because her kidneys were failing. And it's like, which of those caused her death? All of them. They're not, that's not contradictory. They're all reasons. And the same way here, God's the deepest reason. If you, if you come to faith in Jesus and you are saved and you spend eternity in heaven and somebody says, what is the deepest reason why you're here? I promise you when you're there and you're redeemed and your mind works right and your heart works right, your answer will be, God, God's the reason I'm here. 
He chose me when I never would have chosen him. He chased me down when I was running away from him. He loved me when I hated him. He showed me grace when I could never, ever deserve it. God's the reason that I'm here. And then if they press farther and they're saying, well, well, how did God show you his grace? You can point to all sorts of human causes. He brought this person in my life to share the gospel with me. He, he had these people in my life who loved me in a really, really hard time. He worked out these circumstances where he broke a lot of my pride and my self-reliance, and I realized how much I needed him. Where he, I was born in this home, and my parents spoke the gospel to me. All the, and you're like, well, I thought you said God was the reason. Is this other stuff the reason? You're like, yeah. And then at some point, like my heart came to life to how beautiful the truth of the gospel was, and I believed. So you're saved because you believed? Yeah! <laughs> but that's not the deepest reason. Do you see what we're wrestling with here? And trying to choose between the two doesn't fit with the way we approach anything else in reality. A couple more illustrations, and then we'll move to heart application and wrap up for the day. This whole God's outside of time, this one's really, really helpful to me. Imagine, I'll draw the picture here. Imagine that you live behind this like 100-foot fence, wooden fence. You can't see over it, you can't get outside, and there's one knot hole right here. And there's this parade passing in front of the fence. And all you can do is put your eye up to the knot hole, and you see like whatever's coming right in front of you. That is what our life is like. like. We get this sliver of time, always. Now, imagine God up here in a helicopter and he looks down and he sees the whole parade all at once. He can see the stuff that's already past you. He can see what's right in front of you. He can see the stuff that hasn't come to you yet. What he's seeing doesn't make what you see any less real. You're seeing part of the parade and it's a real part of the parade. He just sees the whole parade all at once. Like he doesn't have to wait till it passes in front of him each sliver at a time. Like what is past to us, he still sees right now. If we're right about him being outside time, and there's places you can go in the Bible, a lot of references that make it sound like he's outside time. If we're right about that, the past is still present to him in this, whatever that moment is up there. And the present right now is present to him. And the future, like he already sees it. That's why you get in some of these letters and Paul say things like, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm standing right here. He's talking from a heavenly perspective of God. God sees the whole thing done already. Like He sees who you were. Like he knows that. And he sees his work in Jesus in you right now. And he sees who you're going to be. You are that to him already. He sees the whole thing. And this ties into something I said a couple of weeks ago, that this, I think, is why everything you do right now matters. Because if we're right about that, and from all eternity past, he's seeing the whole thing, then he's like an author that can step back and he can look at every piece, and he has an infinite amount of time. He actually has a timeless amount of time to, to figure out how am I going to put this whole story together in a way that accounts for every decision they make, every prayer they pray, where all of it works out according to the purpose of my will. So that when you pray right now, I really believe this. God doesn't just hear you right now in our minds. He's always heard you. That moment's always been present for him. Before he spoke a word of creation, he took that prayer into account. And he wove it into everything that he's ever created. Like he's really, because you start thinking, well, if he's sovereign, he's already written the story, my prayers don't matter. Except your prayers are part of the story that he's using as he writes the story. And then do you see how significant it is that Paul would run into a prayer here? In, in verses 15 to, to 23, and then again in chapter 3 and verses 14 to 21, I put that prayer in your notes because I haven't ever gotten to our second danger of the morning, all right? Like we're still working on the first, like you see this in the whole big picture. I'm going to get there as we wrap up right here because it is the application piece. Um, that, that what you pray right now, if God is who he says he is in the Bible, and the only way that it would make sense if he's really God like the God above all things, the God who knows all things, the God who's in control of all things and nothing controls him, if that's who he is, then when you pray, he has given you access to the fullness of who he is in working out the mystery of his will over the course of all time. Like your prayer has eternal ramifications in both directions. 
Now, here's the second danger. The first danger is that we miss the point of this passage, and the point isn't just predestination, right? The point is to see the beauty of everything that God's done for us in Christ, how he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I want us to spend more time on those blessings next week where you can offer some of your thoughts. But the second thing is that we miss the purpose of the passage. So if you've been waiting the whole time, what's the second danger? The second danger is that you miss the purpose of this passage. And look at the purpose of this passage. When Paul starts praying for them, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of what? Him. The purpose of this passage is not that you will know more about predestination. The purpose of this passage is not that you'll know more about any of the other stuff we listed. Forgiveness, redemption, sealing in the Holy Spirit, the promise of God. The purpose of this passage is that you would know God that you would know more of who God is. Now, all these things that we've talked about, they're related to who he is. They're because of who he is. They reveal things about him. But if all you get today is more information and you're a little bit smarter, we've totally failed. Totally failed. It's one of the reasons why I feel strongly that if, if consistently I just stand up here and lecture and give you more information, that is not the best way that we can make disciples. Because the goal isn't that you'll leave with more information. The goal is that you will leave knowing God, that in your own personal encounter and relationship with God, that you'll know more of who He is, that He would be more beautiful and more wonderful and more amazing to your heart because of the things that you're seeing about Him. So that the, we would hopefully stand up here in a way that says, here, let me take you. I pray, by prayer and dependence on the Spirit, let me take you to an encounter with God himself in his word. Not an encounter with me and not an encounter with thoughts and intellectual ideas, but an encounter with God so that when you leave, you can know him more. And you can have that relationship with him. And you don't wait next week to come back and get some more information from the guy up here, but that you are knowing God all week because you're encountering God by his Spirit in his word all week, and you're doing that with other people. And look at chapter 3, the other prayer that I included in your notes. Just for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So the very power of this eternal, infinite God, that he needs to give it to you for something. What's all that power going to be used for? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. So here's what he's got to give you all the strength of God himself for. To comprehend that you're going to know something, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He says you need all the power of God that exists in all reality for you to be able to begin to understand how much he loves you in Jesus. Your mind can't grasp the things that we're talking about. That God himself has to do a powerful spiritual work to open up your mind and to open up your heart that you would know. Because otherwise, you'll come to it in your natural self. You'll be like, I hate that. Get rid of that. It's ugly. <laughs> and he's like, no, you need God to open your eyes. Only the power of God can help you see how beautiful this is. And even more, notice that it's to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Like if you've ever wanted more biblical evidence that you just fill in your mind with knowledge is not the same thing as a relationship with Jesus, right here it is. Like what kind of knowledge? How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? In our language, I think we would say you can't just know it with your head. You have to know it in your heart. Another way we would say is you can't just learn it. You have to experience it. That's what he's saying, that you won't just know the facts about Jesus. You won't just know the doctrines about God. You will know Jesus experientially. You will know God experientially. You will have an actual relationship with him where, listen, if you couldn't even spell predestination, <laughs> I don't care if you can, if you couldn't even spell it, that you could look somebody in the face and say, let me tell you how God loves me in Jesus. Let me tell you what he's done for me just this week in my broken mess and in all my emptiness when I've got nothing to offer to him and, every, and I'm scrambling around everywhere trying to make it look good and make it work and he just whispers this word into my heart and he says, be still and know that I'm God. Rest in me. Peace I give to you. And you start to hear him and you know him and you know he's living in you. And you know that he's better than all the things you could ever know about him. 
that if you choose between knowing stuff about him and knowing him, there's no comparison. And then the more you know him, this was really funny, the more you know him, the more you may start to understand stuff about him. Because you say, I see how this fits with who he is. And so I would say, if everything I've said this morning has just been another hurdle for you and another obstacle, just step back. My words, they're not, other than in a, an attempt to align with Scripture, my words have no authority in your life. And so just toss it. Like If it hadn't been useful, toss it all. Don't look at this doctrine a single time more and look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. Over and over and over. Look at Jesus and say, show yourself to me a little more. Help me do a work in me by your Spirit so that I see how beautiful you are this week. So I see how, so I see how gentle you are, how kind you are, how patient you are, how loving you are. That I see how able and powerful and strong you are. Help me know you more. And when you want to know him more, there's all sorts of truth about him that will flow out of that. But that's not the goal. It's not the purpose. It's not the purpose of your life. It's not the purpose of why we get together in church. Not to know stuff, to know him. He is the beginning from all eternity past, and he is the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There's nothing else to know outside of him. It all fits and fills up inside of him somehow. Just know him. Like, Don't let anything I've said this morning be a distraction for you from knowing him. And then here's the application for me this week, and I'm going to share it with you, and then we're going to sing a song of worship. And I pray in worship you'll say, God, this is how great you are. I don't understand you, but I, I believe you and I trust you. That's where we're headed. For me, when I reject this view of a God this big, there's two things that happen in my life. And, and somebody was talking to me after service two weeks ago, and he really, he, he said this to me in a way that crystallized it. And I was like, man, that's, I struggle with that in my heart. When I reject this type of God, like who's in control of everything and this sovereign, the first thing that happens is there's an unbelievable amount of pressure I put on myself. Because all of a sudden, you are the center of the universe. <laughs> like it depends on you. Like you've just said, I reject the view of God where ultimately it depends on Him. Well, if the stuff that happens in your life doesn't ultimately depend on Him, guess who it depends on? <laughs> and so it's just this weight. Of, it's, nothing's ever good enough. Like the best I do is still not enough. And most of the time, I don't do the best I can do. Almost never do I do the best I can do. And you keep trying. It's like, well, I just got to do more. I got to do more. I got to do more. There's not enough stuff happening. I'm not bringing enough stuff about. This isn't going the way it should. They don't think. The, and you hear everything that everybody says. And you're just like, oh, they think I should do this. They think I, should, I better do this. And there's just this pressure all the time to make something happen. Because you can't rest in the arms of a God who's making everything happen. Because you've rejected him. So there's unbelievable pressure. And then there's this huge feeling of insignificance. I've done everything I can. There's not enough. <laughs> this is me. Like Here I am, this itty-bitty thing that just lives for a few years, and then I'm dead, and who knows what's happening next, and I can't control that. And all this stuff happened back then, and I can't control that. And as a matter of fact, there's stuff happening all over the world right now that I don't even know about. What difference does it make what I do? And there's this huge pressure to always do more, and there's just this desperate emptiness of I'm so insignificant. And Jesus stepped down into earth to take that away from you. To show you who God really is. How much he loves you. And that he's working out his plan of grace in a way that's beyond anything you could ever imagine. Here's what happens when you believe that's who that God is. All the pressure, like the moments when you believe it, it's hard to hold on to it, all right? But with the moments when you believe it, all that pressure... Thank you, God, that it doesn't depend on me. Thank you, God, that you take it all on your shoulders and they're so much bigger than mine. Thank you, God, that this whole thing depends on you. If we dig down to the deepest reason, if we get all the way to the foundation of all things, why do they happen? Because of you, not because of me. So let me quit pretending like it's all on me and let me quit living with the pressure that it's all on me. It's not. And I thank you and I praise you. Here, take it. Would you take it experientially for me? Let me live this week like it's on you and it's not on me. And I can just rest in your arms. 
the pressure goes away. But here's the other crazy thing, that feeling of insignificance. He takes the pressure away and he gives all this significance to your life. Because now all of a sudden, everything that you do is connected to the plan of the one who works out all things in conformity of his will. You pray and it feels tiny to you. And the infinite God is hearing it from all eternity past and writing a story of redemptive history that's built partially on your prayer. It matters more, not less, when you're praying to a sovereign God. And even more, you feel insignificant because like nothing I do matters. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to chalk up enough credit to make myself worthy than anybody. And then God's like, I, do you see who I am? Do you see how big and wonderful and beyond comprehension I am? Like God looks at you that way and says, do you see who I am? And he's like, I love you. You're significant to me. I choose you. And it's not the kind of thing you earned, so it's not the kind of thing you can lose. I choose you because I choose you. And you can't make me stop choosing you. I love you because I love you, and you can't make me stop loving you. And every one of our hearts longs to be loved that way. Every one of our hearts longs to be chosen that way. And we will never find it in this world. Like the best human love that anybody can offer you. It can mimic that. It can look like that to a certain extent, but none of us can give that kind of love. You will only find it in him. And I want you to imagine whatever it is that you think this will make me feel most valuable in life. Like pick your area that's most significant to you. And so, you know, if it's sports, let's say it's basketball. And I want you to imagine you're, on a, you're playing a pickup game on a playground and Michael Jordan walks up and he's like, I choose you to be on my team. Like how's that feel to you? if basketball is really important to you. you know, or maybe it's fashion, and you want to design all this pretty stuff, and Louis Vuitton comes like, I want you. You're my vice president of design from now on. How does it feel if you're chosen that way? You know, or, or maybe you're in, you're in the tech world, and, and, and you're, you're writing code all the time. You're coming up with these new ideas. And I, and I don't care who it is. I know, I know Steve Jobs is dead. But you know, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. Like, and like, I want you. I want you on my team. I want you to write code for me. Like, and, just, and, and go through the list. The, the, you love playing the stock market. And you've got a good mind for investing. And Warren Buffett's like, I want you. How do you feel about that? Like, is that a bad thing when you're chosen that way? Or is it a good thing? Okay, now all those, they're choosing you because of something in you that they thought, hey, that looks pretty good, that's useful to me. And when you're not useful to them, what happens? You miss, hey, turn the ball over ten times and miss three game-winning shots. Has Jordan got you on the court next game? Mm, if you watch the last dance, like Jordan's going to punch you in the face, right? Okay, God more valuable than Michael Jordan and Louis Vuitton and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. Like his word means so much more. And he has looked at you and he said, I choose you. I want you in my family. I want you to be my child. I want to give you my love and not just give it to you. I want you to experience it in a way that surpasses knowledge. And then he comes, he says, and it's not because you can do something for me. I'm not using you. I don't want what you can give me. I want you. He didn't set his heart before the foundation of the world on your goodness or your acts of service or your righteous deeds or your religious faithfulness. He didn't set his love and heart before the foundation of the world on your talents or your abilities or your success or your popularity or how impressive you are. None of that. He didn't look at that stuff and say, oh, I want that. He looked at you. You. In the depths of his infinite mind and heart, he looked at you and he said, I want you. Don't come to these verses where he chose you and see them as an ugly thing. If there's any way this morning for the Spirit to soften your hearts and you would see them for the beautiful thing they are, see them for what they are. The God of the universe chose you. He wants you. He loves you because he loves you. 
It starts and ends with him, and he sweeps you up in it, and he gives you every spiritual blessing in Christ. He loves you. And whatever voice you hear from yourself, from anybody else in the world, I don't know who all's in your head telling you that you're not enough, that you're insignificant, that you're not worth it, that you need to do more, that you're not good enough, that there's no hope for you, that you're too far. Whatever voices you hear, I pray that God will shout louder to you in Ephesians 1 and you will hear that you will hear your Father's voice saying, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it. You're significant to me. That's what he's saying to you this morning. And he has turned all of who he is in all of his infiniteness and eternality, like all the things we can't even begin to comprehend. He's turned all of it for your good in Jesus because of who he is. And so let's pray right now, and let's thank him for that. We're going to have pastors and decision counselors down here, elders, staff, wives. If you want to talk to somebody, pray with somebody during this last song, do that. But when we worship, worship God for who he is. Let's pray together. Father, my words aren't enough. All I know to say is thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for everything that you have done in Jesus. And then I say, please, Father, help us see it. Help us be changed by it. Please. When we leave this morning, Help us know you more and live differently because of the truth of who you are, the truth of what you have done for us in Jesus, and what that means for every moment of our lives as your children. It's all I know to say, Father. Please do it. In Jesus' name, amen.